All right, good to see all of you. Welcome to Awakening. My name is Jay. Um, it's fun because I just see a lot of really, really fresh mustaches tonight. <laughs> because it is Movember. I too have been participating in Movember. <laughs> I've been participating since like November of 06. When God created the Asian man, he had a decision to make, right? He thought, awesome mustache and facial hair, or good at mathematics? <laughs> and we all, we all know which he chose. So, happy November to all of you. Um, we're, uh, we're in a series called Sink or Swim. And last week, we kicked off by talking about this really well-known story uh, about David and Goliath. And we made a couple of points. The, the idea, the concept behind this entire series, Sink or Swim, is how can we not just survive, but thrive in the middle of what is often God's very dangerous will, right? God has not promised us a safe life. Only the best life. And so we began last week by exploring some of these ideas, and we said a couple of things. And, and the reason we want to keep, uh, recap tonight is because this is going to be important to launching us into where we're going tonight. And this is in your notes. Um, last week we said a couple of things. First, what looks like courage in the end always begins as conviction at the start. What looks like courage in the end always begins as conviction at the start. So when we look at the story of David and Goliath, we see this, this brave little boy march into the valley and he slays a giant. And we, we look at the result of the story and we say, what courage. But when we read the entire story, what we find is that David wasn't just, he wasn't a courageous person. And last week we went so far as to say there's no such thing as naturally courageous people and naturally cowardly people. David simply allowed his conviction that God was with him and for him to lead him into the valley where he accomplishes the impossible by slaying the giant Goliath. And what we said was that it is conviction that drives us into stories that result in courage. There are no courageous people and cowardly people. There are only people who live by the strength of their convictions and those who don't. Secondly, we talked about conviction. What is our conviction? And we made this point, that we can thrive in the dangerous middle of God's will with the conviction that God is with us and that God is for us. And so tonight, as we continue this series, we want to explore that idea in particular. What does it mean that God is for us? Right? That's, that's kind of a, a statement we throw around. It's in a lot of our worship songs that we sing, that God is for us and not against us. But what does that really mean? What does it mean that God is for us? That's where we're going to go tonight. And as we do, we're going to journey through this really obscure little Old Testament book called Jonah. 
And some of you know the story of Jonah, others of you don't, but if you grew up in church, right, some of you are too young to remember this, but I remember like the flannel graph and the giant fish, right, and Jonah's story is always about this giant fish that swallows this guy Jonah, and then Jonah prays and God like makes the fish spit him out and stuff. It's like Jonah and the whale, Jonah and the fish, whatever, right? We know that story. But we want to explore tonight some different parts of the Jonah story because we believe that there are some things in Jonah's story that paint a picture for us as to what it is we mean and what it is, most importantly, that God means when he says that he is for us. If, if you go to Jonah chapter 1, you can just flip your Bibles there if you have it, if you don't. Um, and just follow along as, as I read it. But uh, Jonah chapter 1 um, tells the story of God going to this Jewish prophet, this Hebrew prophet named Jonah. And you have to remember during this time, Jonah was written about 2,500 years ago. It's this ancient book. And you have to understand at this time, the Jewish people, Israel, was God's chosen people at this time. And so the prophets of Israel were essentially God's mouthpiece. They were the people through whom God would speak to the rest of the people, to the, to the entire nation. And so Jonah, as a prophet, is kind of an important person. And God comes to Jonah and he gives him this command. He says, I want you to go to a city called Nineveh and I want you to preach at Nineveh. Tell them some of the things that I want you to tell them. And then Jonah, some of you know the story, Jonah decides, nah, I don't want to do that, right? So God instructs him to go. God tells him very clearly, Jonah, this is my will for your life in this season and in this moment. And Jonah says no to God's will for his life in that moment. And here's how the Bible, Jonah chapter 1, verse 3, describes that interaction for us. Jonah 1, verse 3, it says, Jonah ran away from the Lord. Now, this is, here's why this is so crucially important. And this is in your notes. Departure from God's will is departure from God himself. You notice that God tells Jonah what he wants Jonah to do. And when Jonah says no to what God wants him to do, what the scriptures paint for us is that Jonah doesn't simply not do what God wants him to do. It says that Jonah runs from God. That Jonah ran away from the Lord, from God. Departure from his will is departure from him. Now, we can get into all sorts of theological arguments and debates about like, well, I've heard this thing called omnipresence, that God is everywhere, right? And, and yeah, that's true. God is everywhere. But as Christians, for those of us who would say, I am a follower of Jesus, here is the reality. And this is the lie that so many of us have bought into. It's a lie that I have bought into so many times in my life. We've bought this lie that God simply shows up wherever it is we decide we want him to show up. And here's the reality. God does and will do whatever he wants to do. 
And it is grace that invites you and I to be a part of what God is doing. And so when we say no to that invitation, we are saying no to God himself. And the reason we begin there tonight is because I want the weight and the tension of that reality to be heavy in this room. I just want to be very honest with you. You can say no to what God is calling you to do. But if you do, be very clear, you are saying no to God himself. Be very clear about that. You don't pick and choose. right? God is not a genie that you call upon when you need three wishes. God is moving and he is changing the world and he has invited us to participate. And if you say no, you are saying no to God himself. Now here's what the rest of Jonah's story tells us. I want to read a couple of passages for you. First is Jonah chapter 1, verses 12 to 16. And then I'm going to read Jonah 3, verses 1 to 10. And both of these chunks of Jonah's story tell us something really interesting about what it means when we say God is for us. Jonah 1, 12 to 6. Let me paint the picture before we read the text. Jonah says no to God, and instead of going to Nineveh, he pays a fare and jumps on a ship that is headed in the other direction to a place called Tarshish. And so he's on this boat running away from God, and then this storm comes, right? God is trying to shake Jonah up, saying, "Uh uh-uh, you don't just run from me. Right? It doesn't happen this way. This is not how it works. You don't just hop on a boat that goes the other way and think like, I, God, right? God of the universe thinks, where's Jonah? Right? He's like, no, that's not how it works, buddy. And, and there's this crazy storm that happens. And so the sailors on the ship who are not Israelites, these are, no, these are Gentile sailors. And in the Old Testament, what you have to understand are that if you are not an Israelite, if you're not a Jew, if you're a Gentile, you are essentially not one of the chosen, right? You are a pagan Gentile outside of the graces of God. That's the Jewish understanding in the Old Testament. And here's what happens in the story. Jonah walks out because there's this storm happening and all the sailors are freaking out like, what's going on? Has somebody on this ship angered the gods? Right? They ask that question. And Jonah says this, chapter 1, 12 to 16. Pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Now at this point, you would think that the bad guys in the story, the unchosen, the pagan Gentile sailors would say, yeah, kick him overboard. (laughs) He's saying do it, right? Yeah, that's what the bad guys would do. Here's what happens. Instead, the men, the Gentile pagan sailors did their best to row back to land. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord. In your Bibles, it's all capital L-O-R-D. What that means is that these Gentile, pagan, outside of the graces of God sailors pray to the same God you and I pray to, the same God Jonah prays to. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. 
do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men, the pagan, Gentile, sailor men, greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to the Lord. In this story, the bad guys end up being the ones with compassion. The bad guys who you expect to say, yeah, we'll throw that guy overboard. It's his fault. They say to the good guy, no, we're not going to throw you overboard. Let's try to row back to land. And finally, when they realize they can't do it, they relent, they throw him overboard, and they begin praying. The bad guys begin praying to God, to our God. They offer sacrifices, and they make vows. They worship, like you and I just did. They worship God. There's this other part of the Jonah story that's so interesting. It's chapter 3. Now, Jonah's been thrown overboard. A fish eats him up. He prays this beautiful prayer, and then God allows the fish to spit him back out onto land. And then God says, have you learned your lesson? And Jonah's like, well, yeah, I just got eaten by a fish. So yes, I've learned my lesson. I'm going to do what you want me to do. And so Jonah finally goes to Nineveh, and here's what happens. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now let me stop there for a second and paint a bit of a picture for you. Nineveh at this time is the capital city of an empire called Assyria. And up until recently at this point in history, Assyria had been the, Israel's greatest enemy. They were Israel's uh, like most vicious, violent oppressors. They enslaved the Israelites. This is why in chapter 1, when God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh, Jonah says, I'm not doing that. That's insane. You're telling me to march into the capital city of the enemy and to tell them what you want to say to them? First of all, God, why would you want to say anything to them? This is the enemy. These are the bad guys. These are the guys on the outside. They're unchosen. They're outside of your grace and love. That's Nineveh, the capital city of the enemy empire that has oppressed the people of God for generations. And here's what happens. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city and it took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming, and here's his great message for the people of Nineveh. Very moving. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Just like clean to the point, right? Like after all of this, God's like, I have this great message I want you to give to the Ninevites. And Jonah's, Jonah's expression of that message is, you guys got 40 days and then it's over. That, that's what he says. And then here's the very next verse. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed. 
And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Sackcloth is something you would wear in like, as, a, as an expression of repentance. Utter repentance and remorse and sadness and guilt. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation the king issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Totally backwards. The story does not make sense. The enemy, the capital city of the enemy empire, turns to God and says, You're right, we're wrong. And they repent. And they return to God, and then God, in His inexplicable grace, relents. And He shows grace and compassion and love. Now, the reason these texts are so odd and so peculiar and so strange is because the world in which you and I live is a world that labels very clearly good guys and bad guys. There are good guys and bad guys. There are Christians and non-Christians. There are whatever else right? Political, socioeconomic labels. You can slap all sorts of labels on. This is the world in which we live. Black and white, there are those who are with us and against us. Those who are on the inside and on the outside. Those who have God's favor and those who do not. And the story of Jonah tells us a totally different story. It tells us that in God's kingdom, And that God's will, His desire, is for all people. There's some New Testament texts that tell us very beautifully uh, this reality. 1 Timothy 2, 1-6, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live, live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved. Colossians chapter 3, verses 11 and onward. Here's what Paul writes. Here in God's kingdom, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ, and this is awesome, but Christ is all and is in all. This is the kingdom you and I have been invited into. 
the paradigm of good guys and bad guys, the old westerns of cowboys and Indians, cops and robbers, they do not exist in God's kingdom. Every human soul is lacking and frail and flawed and sinful and broken. And every human soul has been invited by the grace poured out on the cross to say yes to sonship in daughtership in the kingdom. Not because we deserve it or have earned it, but because God is good. And He is loving. And He is good to all. And He loves all. Now people have the opportunity to say yes and no. I'm not making some sort of broad general statement about the salvation of everybody. People can say yes as many of you have, and people can say no, as many people do. But the invitation is for all. N.T. Wright is one of my favorite theologians. He says this, The line between good and evil is not a line between us and them. It is a jagged line that runs down the center of every human society and every human being. See, when we get into these paradigms of us versus them, we're the good guys and they're the bad guys, when we think about the church along those lines, that this, this gathering is like your safe place to get away from the chaos of the world, when we begin seeing it that way, we miss we miss what God has called us into. And this is in your notes. God's will calls us to do more than just make a point. God's will calls us to make a difference. When you say, this is us and that is them, you're making a point. When you say, the people of God, I'm with the people of God and we're on the inside, God loves us, God is for us, and everybody else is on the outside, you're just making a point. Because it's been that way and it will continue to be that way. But God has not called you to make a point. God's will for you, without knowing the details and the intricacies of your particular life, I can safely say this. I know, without knowing God's specific will for you, I know with certainty that God's will for you, each and every one of you, and for me, is not to make a point. It is to make a difference. It is easy to make a point. I could grab my phone and in 140 characters, I could tweet whatever point I want. It is difficult to make a difference because making a real difference requires us to say yes to the invitation to step into dangerous waters, to risk something, to be vulnerable to love when they do not love back, to show grace when it is undeserved, to, to suffer with, with compassionate hearts, to suffer with those who are suffering when we have options to not suffer. God's will calls us to do more than just make a point. It calls us to make a difference. And so how do we make that difference 
Jonah chapter 4, this is how the story of Jonah ends. And the ending of Jonah is like this really odd ending. If you have a chance this week, I would encourage you, read Jonah, the entire book. It's just four chapters. It's really quick. But the ending is just odd. And like, and I'm not going to give it away because it's kind of funny and you should just read it on your own. It's really strange. But the last chapter of Jonah, toward the end, it, it ends like this. After Jonah shares, after Jonah shares about what, what God has said, the message that God has given him to give to the Ninevites, and after the Ninevites return, right, flip the story on its head. The bad guys come to know God and to worship God and to be repentant. Jonah becomes angry. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says this, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That, that, that is what, why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew, and here's the key, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Jonah's angry because to Jonah, it's not fair. Hold on a second. So you're going you're gonna to rescue, you're going to let off the hook the, the capital city of the evil empire that has oppressed us for generations. They put on some sackcloth and said they were sorry, and now you're just saying, oh, it's all good and fine. That's not fair. That's Jonah's anger coming out. And he's very honest. This is us too, right? You might look at this story and go, well, no, I would never be like that. But you know it's true. When you go to Safeway and you have eight items, but the guy in front of you has 15 items, and you look up at the sign and it says, express lane, 14 items only. And there's something inside of you that's just like, burn in hell forever, <laughs> Now you laugh because it's just a stupid example and it's not that serious, but this is where the seeds of us versus them, good guys versus bad guys, this is where the seeds get watered. It's stuff like this. We want things to be fair. But if you want to do more than make a difference, uh, more than make a point, if you want to make a difference the way God has called you to make a difference, and this is in your notes, then you must realize that in the dangerous middle of God's will, our appetite for fairness is replaced by a hunger for grace, compassion, and love. Our appetite for fairness is replaced by a hunger for grace, compassion, and love because that's the stuff that will change the world. Everybody's fair, right? Everyone wants to fight for fairness. Everybody wants things to be equal and even. Sure. But remember Jesus? Remember that one time he did that one thing that was like the most unfair thing ever? You guys remember that, right? That one time when he lived like this perfect life, sinless, and he died on a cross for like us who don't live perfect lives? Because that's not fair, but it is grace and it is compassion and it's love like nothing else. So how do we make a difference? 
We live with the realization and the reality. We live into the reality that in the dangerous middle of God's will, our appetite for fairness is replaced by a hunger for grace, compassion, and love. And that's what we've been called to do. Not to make a point, but to make a difference. And making a difference requires sacrifice, and it's incredibly hard. In 1962, there was a married couple named uh, Dick and Judy Hoyt. And in 1962, they became pregnant with their son Richard, and they call him Rick. And Rick was born with severe cerebral palsy, and he's a quadriplegic. He was a quadriplegic from birth. What this means is that he has absolutely no control of any extremities whatsoever, and he can't speak. He's bound to a wheelchair. The way Rick communicates, actually, there's a, a button. Um, there, there's a button on the side of his headrest on his uh, wheelchair, and the, all he can move is his head. And so he pushes this button and he types out letters. When Rick was 15 in 1977, uh, at school, he heard about this five-mile benefit run for a lacrosse player who um, was injured in an accident and, and was bound to a wheelchair just like him, became a quadriplegic. And so Rick went home and he told his dad, Dad, I, um, I want to run. I want to run in this, in this five-mile benefit run for this kid. And obviously, Rick can't run himself. And so his dad, and when Dick tells the story, it's really funny. He says in 1977, when, when Rick asked him if they could run, he talks about how out of shape he was, and he talks about how five miles sounded like 5,000 miles. <laughs> but it's his son asking him, and so he said, all right, let's do it. And so for five miles, Dick Hoyt pushed his son Rick. And when they finally finished, hours and hours later, and Dick is just covered in sweat, and his lungs are burning, and his legs feel like lead. His son, Rick, said to him, Dad, when we run, I don't feel handicapped. And so since 1977, Dick and Rick Hoyt have run together in over a thousand marathons, Ironman competitions and triathlons. This is how they do it. Dick Hoyt actually has come within 35 minutes of beating the world record in the marathon. And sports columnist Rick Riley has written, he said, and I'm pretty sure the world record holder wasn't pushing a kid in a wheelchair. Sometimes when Dick and Rick run in like the Ironman or the triathlons, you got to swim and ride a bike. For the swimming portion, this is what they do. Rick gets in a little raft, and Dick pulls him across the lake. And after that's done, Dick grabs his son, carries him, and he does this. Over a thousand times they've done this. Dick Hoyt runs for two. He runs for two. Recently, in an interview, after 30-plus years of this, after a 1,000 competitions, Rick was asked, if you could do one thing for your dad, what would you do? 
And without hesitation, he responded, if I could do one thing for my dad, I would put him in my chair and push him. You and I can live the rest of our lives just for us, for ourselves, siloed and protected and safe. And you can hold on to that little golden card you got when you were baptized when you were 12, or you rededicated your life 26 times at every summer camp you went to, (laughs) and think to yourself, well, I'm going to heaven, so that's all that matters, right? It is not all that matters. It is not all that matters. You are on the planet, not to make a point, but to make a difference. And there are people in our world, in your world, at your work, in your classes, in your family, some of your best friends who are broken and are not living the life God has designed for them to live and are on a path that leads them to a place that they don't actually want to go, and they don't realize it. And yet you and I sit by because we're so into comfort, and we say, well, I I at least tell them what I think. I tweet at them Bible verses. And we make point after point after point. But here is the deal. The greatest point a person has ever made never made a difference in the world in real life. Differences are made when we say yes to the invitation to step into dangerous waters. Where we have to risk something. Where we live not with fairness in mind, but as, with grace, compassion, and love as the driving forces. Here's what I believe and know about you. When you hear the story of Dick Hoyt, your heart is moved not because you think he's better than you. Your heart is moved because you know you're on the planet to live like that. And so do I. I don't. I'm so convicted tonight being up here talking to you because I got neighbors and I know God's called me to say, hey, build a relationship. Just say hello. Be kind. Be loving. Be gracious and compassionate. And I'm not. I have people in my family who don't know Jesus and I just let them do their thing because it's inconvenient for me. And all the while, God is saying, step in. Step into these dangerous waters. And watch as I change everything. Um, Micah and Michelle and the band, they're going to come back up and we're going to close with some worship. But as we go to worship, I want to I challenge and encourage you with this. What are the dark places? What are the dark places it, that you encounter on a daily basis? And who are the people living there? Because I believe that the light of God himself can pierce any darkness, and I think most of you believe that too. And here is what is amazing about that statement. We often sit by and watch for the light, and the reality is you are the light. You are the light. 
There's this quote by Kathleen Norris. She says this, When a place or time seems touched by God, it is an overshadowing, a sudden eclipsing of my priorities and plans. And if I sense that I am in the shadow of God, I find light, so much light, that my vision improves dramatically and I know that holiness is near. Here's what I'm going to invite us to do. And the guys are just going to play a little bit. And I want to invite all of us together to quietly, silently on our own, spend just a few moments in prayer. And as we pray, here's how I would ask you to pray. Would you envision those dark places that you encounter, the Ninevehs, the Ninevehs in your world that you walk by all the time. And as you envision those places, would you envision the people? And if you do, I guarantee you God will begin placing names and faces into your heart and mind. And as you pray for them, would you pray God's light into those places? I believe we can pray things into reality when we pray into God's will. And it is God's will that every, that every dark place would be pierced and brightened with his light. And you are the light. And so I want to encourage you, challenge you, spend a few moments praying. And then this week, here's how, how I would challenge you. What is next? How will you now be the light? Rather than living comfortably in a world that says, well, it's us and them, how will you, instead of making that annoying point that everybody seems to make, how will you change the story and say, no more points, I will make a difference? How will you reach out? How will you live not with fairness in mind, but grace and compassion and love? Would you begin praying those realities into those dark places and think about the people there? Let's spend a few moments in prayer and then we'll sing together.